So today we're going to continue our series on uh, the letters to the churches in Revelation. I hope you've been as blessed by it as I have. Um, Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church. So Jesus is the one who will build his church. And he said the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a pretty amazing statement because there's no other institution where Jesus said that he would build personally. And so if you're part of the Church of Jesus Christ today, which I hope you are sitting in the audience, then you are part of an institution that only the Lord Jesus endorsed. Now, to put this in context, uh, this book, uh, the book of Revelation, was written about 90 AD. So this was about 60 years after Christ had been resurrected uh, from, from the dead. And uh, the church had gone through a, a huge growth period, but 60 years later, things were looking pretty bleak. If you were to talk to John at this time, John would probably say, I don't know what's going to happen. I believe in the Lord Jesus, but I'm the last apostle. All the other apostles had died off, been martyred. They weren't there any longer. Persecution was everywhere. And the great apostle John, who was in his 90s at this time, he was exiled to an island called Patmos. Now, I've shown you pictures of Patmos. It looks pretty nice today. Some people go there on vacation. At the time that John went there, it was no vacation place. It was just rocks. They didn't even have much water. And so John probably, even at his old age, was told to, build, to, to probably break up these rocks and then move them over there. I mean, he's 90. He's the apostle. He was one of the 12. Not only was he one of the 12, he was one of the three. When you're talking about those who were in Jesus' inner circle, there was John, the beloved disciple. There was Peter, and there was his brother James, and that was the inner circle. John is the last guy. He's sitting on an island He's basically in jail. Why? Because he's preaching the gospel. And so it's a pretty bleak time. And in the midst of a bleak period, in the, meet, in the midst of a hopeless time, the Lord Jesus gives John an unbelievable vision about things to come. And we've been, we've been blessed to be able to read about uh, seven representative churches. Today we're going to hear about the sixth church, which is uh, Philadelphia. And uh, if you've been paying attention, the Lord Jesus has been saying some astounding things. I mean, he's talking about making war with the sword of his mouth to some of these churches. It made me wonder, what would the Lord Jesus say to us today? I think it's, it's a sobering thought. I would turn it around a little bit and ask you a question, since uh, we're, most of us live in America now. We are the land of choice. So if you could join any church, what church would that look like? By the way, I would warn you, don't join a perfect church because you'll go mess it up if you do. Okay, There are no perfect churches. So there are seven churches. They all are representative of churches in the last days until the time of the Great Tribulation. And so Philadelphia is, uh, is, is another, is an important church. So somehow I got Smyrna and uh, Philadelphia. So I get the two churches that had the most persecution. I don't know if that means anything, but we'll, we'll see how it goes today. 
So quick update, if you go to this map, you'll see where Patmos is. I think the last church that, that the Apostle John pastored before he was exiled was in Ephesus. So he had probably visited every single one of these churches, and they knew the Apostle John. And so they're all facing different kinds of challenges. And what's interesting is that that, that the letters were basically around the, the postal route. So if they were, they were doing mail in those days, they're probably about as fast as the U.S. mail is today. That was a joke, but, by the way. But Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and the last one's going to be Laodicea. So t- to set a background, I want to talk a little bit about Phil, um, Philadelphia. So Philadelphia was an economic gateway. So if you recall, uh, Smyrna was a rich and powerful city. The three most powerful cities at the time were Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum. Not surprisingly, they were near the coast. That's where a lot of trade happened. And so what you'll see about Philadelphia is that Philadelphia was basically, I know you can't see the roads, Philadelphia was the gateway to Asia Minor. So if you wanted goods to go from the coast where all the trade was happening, if you wanted the goods to go to Asia Minor, guess what? You had to go through Philadelphia. And so what does that mean? It was a very, uh, it was a good economic hub. So people would drive through they would go back and forth, they, they, they put money in there, they'd eat, there'd be places of lodging. So it was actually a pretty well-to-do city. Another thing to note about Philadelphia is that it was held in favor by the Roman government. Obviously, if it's an important trade route, uh, the Roman Empire cares about them because they don't want trade to get disrupted. And so uh, last week you heard that... that uh, that Sardis had a, a big earthquake, that, uh, that damage was done. That, that same earthquake in AD 17 impacted Philadelphia. And so a lot of people actually had to move out of the city because a lot of the buildings had crumbled. But Rome thought so much of Philadelphia that they said, okay, Philadelphia, we need you guys to recover. You don't have to pay taxes for five years because we want you to spend that money on rebuilding the city. So what that tells you is that they were held in high esteem by the Roman Empire. So they were into uh, emperor worship and all this other stuff that went along with it. Another thing that you need to know is that they also had a very influential, rich, and powerful Jewish community. They were These Jews were socially, economically, politically well-connected. And so it's interesting. They're very similar to Smyrna. They had a very influential and powerful Jewish community. And we'll talk a little bit more about how that uh, came to play and why that was important. So who was the original audience of this letter to Philadelphia? So they all start the same way, to the angel or in Angel means messenger, to the messenger in Philadelphia. Uh, So it's to the messenger and to all the believers uh, who belong to the church in Philadelphia. So by the way, uh, important plug for church membership. Uh, Are you part of Creekside Bible Church? You should become a member. If you come regularly, you should become a member so that there's mutual accountability from the elders to to, uh, each of the members. And um, and, and so it was very clear who the members of the church in Philadelphia were. So it was sent to the messenger, to the um, members of the church in Philadelphia, and guess what, to all the other seven churches. So they all got to read each other's letters because different aspects of these letters apply to different people. And there's one other uh, 
person or group of people this was written to. And it's not as obvious until you read the end of it. It's to him who has ears, let him hear. So it's written to all the people, all believers, maybe even unbelievers. If you have an ear to hear, this is written to you. It's written to me. And so why are we reading this letter that the Apostle John wrote to Philadelphia 2,000 years ago? Well, I'll tell you, the Lord has a message for us today, and we're going to uh, dig into that today. Ironically, Philadelphia, I think some of you know what it means. It means the city of brotherly love. We do have a Philadelphia on the East Coast. And it's, uh, it's I'd say, ironic because this was not a nice place if you're a Christian. So it might have been called the city of brotherly love, but if you were a Christian, this was a tough, tough place to be. What's important to note is that Smyrna and Philadelphia were two of the least influential, least powerful, probably the poorest of the seven churches. So as you sit there, and I asked you a little bit earlier, if you could choose any church that you could go to, what church would that be? Well, if you were a typical American, and you're going to study these seven churches, and you're going to do a little spreadsheet, and you say, oh, here, what are the things that I want out of a church? I would bet you Smyrna and Philadelphia would be somewhere near the bottom of your list. Why would you want to go there? Do you want to be subjected to persecution? I think it's something we have to ask ourselves because it's not something, this is not a question. If you're a Christian where you should ask yourself, what church should, do I want to go to? I think you should say, Lord Jesus, I am your child. What church do you want me to go to or be part of? Do we ask that question? I think it's an important question. Now, back in that day, people were not as mobile. It wasn't so easy to pick up and leave Philadelphia and go to some other location. And so these people pretty much were there. But it's interesting that the two churches that had the most persecution, that were probably the poorest, that had the least amount of power and influence, they were the only two churches that got no rebuke from the Lord Jesus. Isn't that noteworthy? Isn't that a powerful statement? We're going we're gonna to find out why. But these are the two churches that had no, not a single rebuke. So what this tells me, Jesus is saying the entire church is good. Wrap your head around that. Without exception, every single person in the church is right in my eyes. Does that change your thinking about whether you want to be part of that church or not? It should. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that I don't know that we've ever done at... Uh, I know we've never done it at CBC, but we, I don't think we've ever done it at GBF either that I'm aware of, but my memory's not that great. Uh, I'm going to actually go to a video clip. So this is from uh, a movie. It's uh, A Few Good I'll Men. I'll answer the question. Wait, you want on. answers? Stop. I think I'm entitled to you. Okay, can we back up? <laughs> okay. That, that's not the devil, by the way. So it's A Few Good Men starring Jack Nicholson as the Colonel Jessup and Tom Cruise as a military lawyer, uh, military lawyer Caffey. So Colonel Jessup is on the witness stand, and lawyer Caffey has asked a very sensitive and provocative question to a senior official. Now, the judge has just told Colonel Jessup that he didn't have to answer the question. 
So with that, I'll answer the question. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. That's a powerful line, isn't it? I think both questions are relevant. Do you want to know the truth? Do you want God to do whatever you want him to do? Or are you ready to submit yourself to the word and to the will of God? This is a serious, serious question. And the second part is equally important. If you hear the truth, are you going to be able to handle it? See, some people, they don't want to know the truth. They'd rather believe the lie. But there's other people that say they want to hear the truth, but once they hear it, they're like the rich young ruler. Oh, I wanted to become a Christian, but now that I know that I have to give up all my possessions, I don't think I want to do it. What an idiot. He kept his garbage and he walked away from eternal treasures. He walked away from the Lord Jesus. What a fool. He couldn't handle the truth. So we're going to talk about the truth powerful truths that are written to the church in Philadelphia. So go to the, if you could go to the, yeah, this slide. It's kind of amazing. You know, the Lord Jesus has so many names and titles, but for each of these churches, he gives a very specific name that is, in line with exactly the, their situation as a church. And so it's noteworthy, and there's three names that he gives that, that on the surface don't seem like they're that significant, but I tell you they're hugely significant. It's, it's just in one verse. These are the words of the Holy One, the True One, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one will open. Three basic titles, but they're profound. I've been meditating on this for weeks, just thinking about what does this mean, the Holy One? What does this mean, the True One? What does this mean, the one who has the key of David? So I'm not going to be able to plumb the depths of this, but I'm going to give you enough to whet your appetite to encourage you to dig into more because, man, you could start from Genesis, go all the way to the end of Revelation, and you will just be scratching the surface of what our Lord Jesus really is. And so the first title, this is the title of the Lord Jesus, the Holy One. Holy One means set apart. He is set apart like none other because he is God. He is the only one worthy of worship. There is none other that deserves worship, only God. Now, if you study the entire Bible, there is one, if you have to pick one defining characteristic of God, what would that be? Many would say, oh, God is love, and love is a very important attribute. God is patient. God is a, a, a myriad of things that we can't even begin to fathom. But the most defining characteristic of God, I would submit to you, is his holiness. He is perfect in every sense. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the Holy One. He is set apart like none other. 
By the way, Jesus is saying very explicitly that he is God. He is taking on the mantle, the Holy One. Basically, Jesus is saying, I am the Holy One. So we know there's God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to get into all that. But Jesus is saying, I am the Holy One. In John 10.3, Jesus said, the Father and I are one. And in John 4, if you get a chance, just in the next chapter, you'll get an amazing peek into the very throne room of God. I mean, I, I just can't imagine getting a peek into where God resides. And we get an amazing story about four awesome beings one with the face of a man, one with the face of a lion, one with the face of an eagle in flight, and one with the face of an ox. All of God's creation, representative of God's creation. They have six wings and eyes everywhere, meaning they can see everywhere. And what do they do day and night? Day and night. For eternity, they say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and who is to come. Day and night. You think you, think you get a little tired of saying the same thing day and night? Well, then you don't know God. I can't imagine being in the very presence of of Almighty God. And it wouldn't be, I don't know the words could do enough. I think this is a translation for us mere mortals to try to understand. But they say three times, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was, who is, and is to come. Now, if you are the church of Philadelphia, and you're being persecuted, and you're holding on to your faith, and you're trying to live a righteous life, and you're still being persecuted, does this give you comfort? I hope it does. Because the one who sits enthroned in heaven, the one where these powerful beings. In some translations, it says creatures. I don't like it. I think they say creatures because there's some animals. These are not creatures. These are living beings, powerful beings, supernatural beings. And they say, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He is the one speaking to us this morning. So I hope you're ready to receive what God Almighty has to say to us this day through his word. The second title, The True One. The True One. What is truth? We're surrounded by so many lies, are we not? Where can truth be found? I'm talking about real truth. I don't know if I've gone a full day speaking the truth every moment, every second of the day. I may have lied because I didn't fully understand what was going on. We're finite beings. We lie, if you really think about it, you, we have opportunities to lie every second. How are you doing? I'm fine. No, I'm dying on the inside. It's not easy. It's actually impossible. It's impossible for sinners to tell the truth all the time. But we're talking about the Lord Jesus he is the true one. Jesus is the one person. He's a person, by the way, who you can believe. 
You've heard the expression, you can take it to the bank? Well, this is way better than a bank, because we know banks can go bankrupt. Okay? You can take this to heaven, what Jesus says. He is the true one. We live in a world full of liars. There was Bernie Madoff. Billions lost in a Ponzi scheme. Elizabeth Holmes of Theranos. She, she cheated investors of billions of dollars on a lie and fabrication. Jeffrey Epstein, a perverted, sick man who happened to be a billionaire. Liars, all of them. But before we get too smug, I would encourage all of us to look in the mirror. Every single one of us are liars to one extent or another, but not the Lord Jesus. He is the true one. You could stake your life and you could stake eternity on what the Lord Jesus has to say to us. In John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. The biggest lie out there is that all roads lead to heaven. They do not. In fact, 99.9999999992 infinity lead to hell. There is only one way that leads to eternal life, and that's through the Lord Jesus. Because he is the true one. He is the true bread, John 6. He is the true vine. If you're connected to him, you have eternal life. You're not connected to him, you have eternal death. It's as simple as that. How about contrasting Satan and his followers? John 8, 4, 8, 44. You know, these, uh, these Jews, they asked Jesus, quit playing around with us. Tell us who you really are. And Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And so... Jesus said something that, uh, he said the truth, and it hurt. He said, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he's a liar and he's the father of lies. So if you're a liar, you're a son of Satan. But the one who speaks, the one who spoke to the church in Philadelphia, the one who speaks to us this morning, he is the Holy One. He is the true one. Not only that, he is the one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. What's the key of David? Some of you in this room may not even know what a key is. I have an access card. Uh, okay. It's a kind of key. Okay. A key represents power, authority, and access. So if you have that key, if you work at Apple, guess what? You can go in. Someone who doesn't work for Apple, eh, you don't get to go in. Uh, if you are a member of the Kim family, and happen to be the only male in the Kim family, then you have access to my house 24-7. Prefer not that you come between 11 p.m. and... But you have access. So what is the key of David? Well, you have to go back to, we don't, we don't have time to get into all the details, that's a whole other sermon, but the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, where God promises David 
that he will, that Messiah will come from his line and he would lead an everlasting kingdom. So who has the key of David? Who is Messiah? It's the Lord Jesus. So basically, the key of David is access to the kingdom of God. Do you want to know the, the person who has the uh, access to the kingdom of God? I hope you do. There's only one who has that, and that's the Lord Jesus. Now, there's some pretty serious implications because the doors, this door he opens, no one can shut. If he closes that door, nobody's going to open that door. Who do you think is the most powerful person on the planet? I'll give you a hint. It's not a man. It's the Lord Jesus. We all, we all care about different things, but Jesus has the authority uh, over eternal life. So why is this important? The believers in Philadelphia were getting every door slammed in their face. The door to the synagogue, they're kicked out. You are desynagogued. Get out of here. You don't belong to us anymore. They had to deal with verbal abuse, physical abuse, societal abuse, economic persecution, even to martyrdom. You know what? That's like every door being slammed in your face. Have you ever had a door slammed in your face? So how do you think they were feeling? They were probably feeling under siege. They're probably wondering, is this worth it? I thought being a Christian was going to make my life better. But man, everywhere I turn, the doors are slammed in my face. Is heaven real? Can I trust? Can I believe, even though everything is against me? Can I really believe what Jesus said in the Beatitudes in Matthew 5? When he said, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can hear that. But I tell you, it's, it's different when you're going through persecution, and I don't even know what I'm talking about. Because I, I haven't had to deal with that kind of persecution. I've had people reject me when I shared the gospel with them. They said, you know what? I really don't want to be your friend because you're one of those kind of people. So I wouldn't call that persecution. But these people, their very lives were threatened. So that's a, that's a different calculus. So what does the Lord Jesus say? The Lord Jesus, the, the Holy One, the True One, the One who holds the key of David, what does he have to say to the church in Philadelphia? The first thing he says is, I know your works. Is that comforting? How many of you sitting in this room are totally happy with your life right now? If you raise your hand, I'm going to call you a liar. <laughs> I know exactly where you are, says the Lord Jesus. All your struggles, all your joys, all your pains, whatever you're going through, the Lord Jesus knows exactly. Is that comforting? I hope it's comforting. Because that's what the Lord Jesus is saying to you and me this morning. I know. I didn't fall asleep, people. I know. You may think I forgot about you, but I know exactly what's going on. And so what does the Lord Jesus say to this people? He says, behold, behold, pay attention. 
This is important. Behold, there's three beholds here. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. Now before he talked about I open, no one can shut. I shut, no one can open. He only talked about the first part because he knows that these folks in Philadelphia, they've had every door slammed shut in their face. They probably lost their homes. They, got per- they lost their jobs. They had to deal with all kinds of unfortunate circumstances. But Jesus is saying to them, I know you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. Think about that. In the context of persecution, where every, the whole world seems to be against you, the Roman government, the Jews, your friends, your neighbors, everyone is against you, and you keep the word of God. Can you? Would you? Well, these folks in Philadelphia, they kept the word, and they refused to deny the name of Jesus. Would it be such a simple thing? I don't really believe in Jesus. Fingers crossed, behind my back. It's just another lie that I have to say. But these people took it seriously. They said, I'm not going to deny my Lord Jesus, even if it causes me to get martyred. And so what he's basically saying, the Lord Jesus is saying is, you know what? Every door on this earth may be shut to you, but the door to heaven is open. And your name is there, and no one can shut this door. No one. Not the Roman Empire, not the Jews, not your enemies, not Satan. When I, I'm telling you this door will stay open and no one can shut it. You think that was some comfort to these people? Gosh, with all the trials and struggles they were having, what a, what a comfort. The most important door is open and nobody can shut it. So fear not. He understood that they had little power. He's just speaking the truth. Some commentators say that this was a rebuke. This is not a rebuke. This is just a statement of fact. I know you're weak. Does he tell them, uh, be strong. I mean, go, go work out. Get physically fit and, you know, get determined and go make it happen. That's not what he says. He says two things that are essentially the same, one in the positive and one in the negative. The positive, you're keeping my word. What does keeping my word mean? It means action. If you're a Christian and you're just talk, you may not be a Christian. These are some tough things, but I'm going to try to speak the truth to you in love. If you are keeping his word, then where is the fruit? And the negative, you have not denied my name. Wow, what comforting words. Jesus says, Even though you may think nobody knows and you feel so insignificant, you feel like nobody cares, nobody understands, Jesus says, I know your works. I commend you for your faithfulness. By the way, his opinion is the only one that really counts, doesn't it? Aren't we slaves to other people's opinions? Someone says, you look ugly in that outfit. Oh, I'm never wearing that outfit again. (laughs) Really? Uh, Then he says, another behold. Another behold. 
Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but they lie. Whoa. This is the all-knowing, all-powerful, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent, Lord of the universe, calling these Jews the synagogue of Satan. Ouch. Now, what's ironic about this? The Jews believed that they were the people of God. Oh, well, the Holy One, the True One, the one who has the key of David, he calls them the synagogue of Satan. These people that are tormenting us, they're the synagogue of Satan? I know. If, if you're like me, I'm going, go get them, Lord, go get them. That's not what he says. He calls them the synagogue of Satan. They prided themselves on being God's people. He calls them liars like their father, Satan. I'll make a comment. You know, as we go towards the end times, I think it's not unrealistic to think that the greatest source of persecution for true believers are going to be false believers. So just like there was a synagogue of Satan, I believe there's going to be a church of Satan. And these are not going to be the people wearing red outfits. These are going to be people who named the name of Jesus on their front door but they are going to be preaching heresies and lies from the pit of hell. And I don't know, but I wouldn't be shocked if they become the source of great persecution in this country. So for him who has ears, let him hear what the Lord has to say. And a third, behold, behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I love you. Interestingly, God doesn't say that he's going to fix all the problems that they're dealing with. What he says is, ultimately, I will vindicate you. And even though they are making you bow down to them, in the end, in the final day of judgment, they will bow to you. Now, this doesn't mean worship. This means submission. And so, I guess another way to look at it is, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 2, he says, do you know that the saints will judge the world? When the Lord judges the world, we're going to be part of that. That's an awesome privilege. It won't help us in the near term, because we're still going to go through persecution and hardship. But ultimately, when it really matters, they will bow down to you. So don't get confused. These are the false Jews. They will know that Yahweh, Jesus Christ, the Lord of heaven and earth, he doesn't love them. In fact, he hates them. Whoa. Jesus hates yeah, it's in the Bible. Jesus hates his enemies. So you better decide which side you're on. He says, in the end, these enemies of yours who claim to be the people of God, they're going to know that they are of the synagogue of Satan, and they're going to understand that I, the, the true one, the holy one, have loved you. Man, that's a, that's a promise worth holding on to. He gives further encouragement in Revelation 3.10. Now, he's getting very specific. He said, generically, keeping God's word. Now he gets very specific. He says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. 
How many of you living patient endurance right now? Some of you are going through some hard times, I know. Hang in there. The Lord knows. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance in the face of persecution, my words, here's the promise. I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now this, we could probably spend an entire Sunday on this one verse. It's, it's the most written about, maybe one of the most debated in all of Revelation. But I, I'm, I'm going to keep it simple because I don't think it's that complicated. Okay? What's interesting here is that Smyrna, the Lord Jesus said, you'll be tested for 10 days. It'll be a short period of time. Jesus adds something very different in this, in this scenario. He says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world. This is the, this is the first time in the letters to the churches where he talks about what's coming upon the whole world. And so the debate, one of the debates here is, uh, what does keep from mean? I will keep you from the hour. Well, does it mean to protect from, or does it mean remove from? Does it mean that if you, if you persevere, that you don't have to deal with the tribulation? Well, I'm going to cheat here a little bit. The Philadelphia church didn't have to go through the tribulation. But what about us? What about future generations? Uh, let me give you some, uh, some scripture that will give you a theological basis to understand this passage. John 17, in Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prayed that the disciples not to be taken out of the world, but to be protected from the evil one. I know, if you're like me, can you just take me out? The Lord says, nope. Hang in there. It's about patient endurance. 2 Peter 2.9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. So he is going to make everything right. In the trumpet judgments that are, that are later in Revelation, the locusts are commanded to only harm unbelievers. Now, simultaneously during this time, the saints are subjected to intense persecution from Satan and his followers. So let me share with you another perhaps unpleasant truth if you're not paying attention. In the New Testament, Persecution for righteousness is seen as a privilege. Any normal human being would want to escape persecution. It's a normal thing, but we're not talking about normal thing. We're talking about what the Lord Jesus is talking, telling us. By the way, in Revelation, martyrdom of the saints is seen as victory. It's seen as a defeat for Satan. Because Satan's trying to get you off the path of eternal life. And if he has to kill you, he lost. Just like, you know, when Satan, when I, I really believe that when Jesus died on the cross, I think Satan actually thought for a minute that he had won. I, I, I can picture Satan going, I can't believe it. I killed the Son of God. Not recognizing that that was the point of his defeat. So what does this mean? What this means is that God promises to protect us from the wrath of God 
Unfortunately, there's no promise that we will be necessarily uh, saved from the wrath of Satan, except where it says in God's word that he promises not to test us beyond what we can handle. So if I were to be totally honest with you, standing up here, if I were subjected to persecution, severe persecution right now, I honestly don't know if I could handle it. If it depended on me, I would tell you I couldn't handle it. But what I can tell you on the authority of God's word is that it's not my job to handle it. That I put my trust in him. I was saved by grace, and I will be sanctified by grace, and I will be glorified in grace. Amen? Amen. There's an admonition to, uh, oh, I want to talk about the meaning of earth, uh, those who dwell on the earth. That's a technical term in Revelation. Every time it's mentioned like that, it's talking about unbelievers, dwellers of the earth. We're not, we don't have time to get into all of that today. But in Revelation 1.7, it says, When Jesus returns, all the tribes of earth will wail. When Jesus comes back, the Christians are going to be, praise God, our Savior is here. And in contrast, the earth dwellers are going to say, this stinks. It's, it's going to be like the times of Egypt. By the way, did you know that the plagues of Egypt were designed for Pharaoh to see that this was the finger of God and for him to repent? God gave Pharaoh ten opportunities to repent. And what happened? He hardened his heart every time. Same way with the plagues at the end times, the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments. These are opportunities for people to recognize that God is in control and to repent. Sadly, you know what, you know what the Word of God says? That these people will know that it's God and they will try to fight him. How stupid is that? You're going to fight God Almighty? That's how deceptive Satan is. A final admonition to the church of Philadelphia, he says, I'm coming soon. Wait a minute, it's been 2,000 years. Did, did Jesus lose track of time? Did I lose track of time? No. When he comes, he's going to come quickly. It's called imminence. In the proper time, he will come. And we know from other scripture that he's delaying in coming because when he comes back, that's it. So he's buying time for all the elect to come to a saving knowledge of him. His timing is perfect. The final promise for finishing strong, the one who conquers, the one who overcomes, the one who finishes the race. Revelation 3.12, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out. Wait a minute, that sounds like a prison. Well, let me help you understand the context. If you read the rest of Revelation, you know that there is no temple at the end. You don't need a temple because God is, is with us. So what is he, this is a metaphor. 
So when he's saying that you will be a pillar, he's saying you are, by the way, that's what uh, the apostles are called in Galatians 2.9. You are going to be a permanent fixture in the temple of God. So when it comes to heaven, you don't have to worry. You are going to be a pillar. And this, this notion of uh, never shall you have to go out, well, you know what? When they had an earthquake in AD 17, all the people had to move out of the city. And Jesus is saying, you don't have to worry about natural disasters or anything. I will make sure that you're secure. This is a, a promise that you can, you can bank your life on. I will write on him the name of my God. Now, I don't know what your theology is about tattoos. I don't have any tattoos on my body. But if I had one, it would be the name of God. But what's great is it's not going to be outside, it's going to be inside. In our hearts, he's going to write his name, his name, God Almighty, in our hearts. So it won't be like uh, me who went to the airport one time without my passport on an international flight. That's a problem. They're not very, uh, they don't have no sense of humor, those people. <laughs> when it goes to heaven, if you have Jesus in your heart, you don't have to worry about losing it. You don't have to worry about misplacing it. It's there. You got Jesus living in your heart. What a powerful thing. And he says, I will write on him the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from God out of heaven. The funny thing, the Jews were so proud of the earthly Jerusalem. Jesus said, I don't care about this earthly Jerusalem. There's a new Jerusalem coming out of heaven. You read about it in the rest of Revelation. I'm going to write that in your heart. And finally, I, Jesus, will write on him my new name. I know someone's going to come and ask me, well, what is his new name? Of course, I don't know. <laughs> Only Jesus knows, and it will, it will be revealed. But I tell you, Jesus means what? It means he saves. Well, the new name that God Almighty is going to give him, that's not adequate to describe our Savior the King of kings and the Lord of lords. There's going to be a name that is worthy of the name on which every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether they're believers or not, by the way, that only he is Lord. Does that make you feel good? So finally, what, the, what is the message for us today? We who are alive right now. Let him who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. Well, it's not a popular topic, but let me talk a little bit about the paradox or the benefits of persecution. You know, the hardest trial to deal with is injustice. I mean, it's one thing to have, have uh, unfortunate circumstances, but injustice is a particularly hard thing, where you're doing right and then you get punished for that. I mean, that's an un-American thing, isn't it? It makes you want to fight. Well, that's not a Christian thing. Christ says, you step back, I will do the fighting for you. So here's some benefits. Uh, by the way, there's no instruction to fight, nothing about standing your ground, nothing about taking control over your enemies. This Philadelphia church, I'm talking about every single member of the church, they did not leave their first love like the church in Ephesus. There were no false teachers, nor were they tolerated. There's no false teaching of Balaam, idolatry, sexual immorality like Pergamum. There's no toleration of Jezebel like in Thyatira. I got a clue for you. 
false teachers, they don't like persecution. Fake believers, they don't like persecution. In fact, they don't even like trials. As soon as things get difficult, they're gone. They're not asleep like the church in Sardis, living off of their past reputation. They're not indifferent, thinking too highly of themselves like the church in Laodicea. Persecution and trials force people to count the cost of following Christ. This is a small church, insignificant to the world, but not insignificant to the Lord Jesus. And you may feel insignificant in this life, but if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you are significant to the Savior. He knows and he cares. By the way, it makes us, I would challenge you in terms of how to pray for unsaved people. I think sometimes we pray the wrong way. I think sometimes we have to say, Lord, turn loose the Holy Spirit on that person. Make them face trials and tribulations in this life until they realize that there's no hope apart from Christ. We want, we want our loved ones to, to enjoy a good life and then also find Christ. More people than not are like the rich young ruler. Jesus said it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because they don't think they need a savior. They got this. Not recognizing that they are poor, pitiable, blind, and wretched. So if you have a loved one, pray for tribulation in their life until they come to their senses. It's not a popular message. Hey, bro, I'm praying for tribulation in your life. But if that causes them to turn from, the, from their evil and to come to faith in Christ, would it be worth it? It would be worth it. Seeing is not believing, by the way. If I see, I'll believe. That's not true. You know, seeing gets you into big trouble. By the way, this is why pornography is such a huge problem. A lot of covetousness comes from seeing. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. In Romans 10, Paul says, faith comes from hearing. Hearing what? the word of Christ. Trust the words of the one who is holy, the one who is true, who has the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. He is the one that you should fear. Revelation 1.3, it begins, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Amen? It's a tough message, but it's a message we need to hear. All glory to God, our Savior. I hope you will consider carefully what the Lord has said to you this morning. Don't worry about what I said. Just think about what the Lord said through his word. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your goodness. While we deserve wrath, you give us grace and mercy. Lord, most of us in this room, we would just, we would feel sorry for the church in Philadelphia, but we wouldn't even think that they were noteworthy. Oh, too bad for those people. But you see things differently, and you say, 
that you love these people and you know exactly what they're going through. Lord, I know that there are people in this room that are going through some times of severe trial. And others, that season may be yet coming. Father, I pray that you'd help us to recognize that there is no hope apart from you who are the Holy One, the True One. You have the key to eternal life. Help us to reset our priorities, all glory and praise to our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen.